This is Amy, and you're listening to the Talkin' Appalachian Podcast. Hey everybody, today's episode is about three reasons why you can be proud of your dialect. But before we get to that, I'm going to cover a word and a phrase that I put up on our social communities just to give you a little bit more in-depth information and to share some of what our Facebook followers said about their use of the words. So the first word I'm going to talk about is swarp. Swarp was suggested by a listener, so I thought I would go ahead and do that one. Swarp has a couple of different spellings, I guess, depending on how you pronounce it. It's spelled with an A and it's also spelled with an O. And I first heard this from Linda Scott DeRosier, who is the author of the memoir Creaker talking about swarp in relation to drinking, cussing, causing a ruckus, basically raising hell is the way that she put it. And she had the whole room in tears. They were laughing so hard at the way that she was describing this. But I, when I put that up on our social community, some people said they heard swarp in relation to having a party or in a relation to throwing something. There were lots of different definitions. If you go to our Facebook page, you'll see all of the responses that people had. So I think all of these are on sort of the margins of what it means to swarp. They all sort of contribute to the meanings. But it's a variation of swap, which is an old English word. And according to the Dictionary of American Regional English, swap, as it relates to the definition of swarp, is obsolete now. It's not used in that manner. It does have both English and Scots roots. And so I guess based on what, on the feedback that I've gotten, people hear it, but not so many people use it anymore. So that's your discussion of swarp. The other phrase that I put up was watch for deer. And watch for deer is something that we use to say goodbye. It's like an affectionate goodbye, watch for deer. We don't say watch for bear, even though people will hit an occasional bear here in central Appalachia, but they're not as frequent and they're more elusive, unlike deer, which seem to pop out of the woods, you know, every time you get on the road and they'll come out in groups. They're a very real threat to drivers around here and there's really nothing you can do about it because they're so... They're so limber and they're so easy. You know, they can jump fences and they, it's like they wait for the absolute worst time to cross the road. It's like almost like they wait to get hit. I don't understand it. I've never hit one, but I've seen a person in front of me hit one and it sailed over my car and landed on the car behind me. And that was pretty, that was traumatic enough, but they can do a lot of damage. So it has become less of a call to action and more of an affectionate goodbye. But I think we do sort of mean it when we say watch for deer. A lot of you responded that you've used that too. It's not what we'd call a dialect variation. It is a phrase that's used, uh, that's common. Okay, so let's talk about three reasons why you can be proud of the way that you sound. Now, I'm doing this because I've encountered linguistic prejudice. I've encountered people who've told me that there's no reason to keep a dialect other than standard English. Number one, it's a legitimate way of speaking a language backed by research. What that means is every language has a bunch of different dialects within that language that people speak. And those dialects are based on the histories, 
migration patterns, communities of practice, a shared vocabulary around that community of practice. There's a whole host of complex reasons why people speak a particular dialect that they speak. The stigma and the stereotype around a lot of working class dialects like Appalachian Englishes is that it, there must be a lack of education or, it, you know, there must be just completely ignorant or it's a it's an attempt at standard English that's just falling apart when people speak. That's not true because we know that there are patterns that exist in these dialects. And so the, in the short version of this is that research tells us that these patterns exist over hundreds of years and up and down the region. So, for example, we have patterns here in central Appalachia that we share with people in Mississippi, that we share with Pittsburghian Appalachia. These patterns exist hundreds of miles apart from each other. When we talk about language, we're talking about an encoded system of symbols that we use for a particular audience, a particular purpose. That's what a dialect is. This is all backed by research. You can find the research in Talking Appalachian. Number two, a dialect can coexist with another dialect. And when we go back and forth between two or more dialects in our spoken language, we call that code switching. It's not an attempt at English that is failing. It's a choice. It's a conscious choice. Poet Jane Hicks and... Lee Smith, the novelist, say it's a political choice for them. Crystal Wilkinson said in the episode where I featured her that it's a revolutionary choice for her as a Black woman. So people use dialects for lots of different reasons. And code switching is something that we do when we feel like the occasion and the audience calls for it. So for example, I've used this in the past. If I'm sitting around the table with family, I don't want to sound like Dr. Amy Clark. I don't want to sound like I'm standing in the college classroom teaching. I want to sound like I did growing up in my home. And because I didn't erase my dialect, I can go back to that. I can go back to that comfortable voice. I can go back to my voice place. I can converse with them in a way that feels like, you know, when you come home and you take off your professional clothes and you put on your comfortable clothes, that's what a spoken vernacular is. It's a way of staying connected to your community. It's a way of staying connected to people. It's a way of returning to your roots. Another reason people use it is to empower themselves. You know, some people may see it as a liability while other people see it as an asset. Lee Smith writes in part two of Talking Appalachian that she's going to buy a car. She's going to use that dialect to her advantage. She's going to use her accent to her advantage. So we know that people respond to different accents in different ways. And, you know, I'll show this documentary and you can find it on YouTube. It's called American Tongues. And I posted the link on our Facebook community. You can find it there. It's a really great documentary. It's, and I'm sorry if I'm repeating something I said in a previous episode, but for those of you that may not have heard it already, American Tongues was made in the mid 80s. So that will explain some of the hairstyles in <laughs> the old computers. But the information hasn't changed. It looks at dialects all across the United States from coast to coast. It looks at dialects in Boston. It looks at dialects in Kentucky, Texas, Ohio, Tangier Island, Virginia, which is a very distinctive, very, very old way of speaking that's been preserved. And it talks about, you know, all of the different dialects that can exist in one place and all of the attitudes that people have about them. Coexisting with standard English and knowing how to code switch is something that we 
we do consciously, and it's something we learn to do as children. Remember, spoken English is learned by listening and watching and mimicking. Written English is what has to be formally taught. We learn at an early age that we can use different voices when we're children and we're, we're role-playing and we're playing with toys. And you know, you'll watch kids if they're playing with dolls or they're playing with their G.I. Joes or their, you know, whatever, they'll switch voices back and forth as they're role-playing. And that's a type of code switching. And it's something they're learning to do early. That's reason number two. It's not that people who speak vernacular dialects don't know standard English. They know standard English. They're just choosing to use it when they need it. And number three, negative attitudes usually come from ignorance or prejudices about race, about class, about the people who are speaking the dialect. That's what I find is that a lot of people who make negative comments or biased comments, or they're relying on stereotype. And where do we get stereotype? Those kinds of things are fed to us from popular culture. They're fed to us by the people we grow up with. These are attitudes that get in the psyche and they just sort of take root and stay there. But they ha- there's no fact It's feeling, not fact. There's no fact attached to it. If you understand how language works and you understand why dialects exist and why one language can have many dialects, then it makes sense why people continue to speak them. These attitudes about working class dialects in particular go back as far back as in America as the first book that depicted Appalachians as ignorant hillbillies or the first movie or the first television show. And American Tongues, the documentary, covers this as well. There's always stock characters that are made to be the bad guy or the comic fool who have the Southern dialect or the Appalachian dialect. Molly Ivins talks about this in in American Tongues, the slow-talking country boy who is just the ignorant one in the group. And then, of course, you see these stereotypical images that are associated with voice the hillbilly and the overalls with the corncob pipe and the moonshine chug. Those are the images that are conjured by voice. But again, that's not fact. That's not truth. Now, someone might say, all this may be well and good, but it's not going to matter if I go somewhere and my dialect causes me to be ridiculed and I don't have time to give everybody all of these things, right? I don't have time to teach people or they're not going to care. They're just going to, it's just going to make it worse. And that's understandable because there are going to be some people that you will never, ever convince otherwise. I have been in workshops and I have presented the research, rock solid research, every slide, you know, everything is grounded in, (laughs) in studies. And so we know that there's, there's weight behind that. And there will always be somebody in the audience who shakes their head. They're not going to be convinced. They believe there's a good English and a bad English and there's nothing in between. The problem with thinking about language that way is that there is an in-between. You know, Appalachian Englishes exist in that in-between. And think about it this way. And this is this is always my answer when someone says, but what good are they? I mean, don't we always need to be clear and concise with our communication? And isn't standard English the way to, to be that? And if you speak standard English and nothing but standard English, you're probably not going to encounter prejudice, at least for that reason. You're not going to encounter people making fun of you. You're not going to encounter the stigma and you'll always be clear. But let me tell you this, that kind of thinking, if everybody followed that line of thinking, it would erase 
so much of the flavor, so much of the variety that makes us unique and fun and special and just rich with with complication and layers. And and I know that may not make a whole lot of sense, but let me put it to you another way. If everybody followed that line of thinking and, you know, just sterilized everything about themselves that had anything to do with region or had anything to do with with ethnicity or their background, where would we be? You know, we wouldn't have this rich body of literature. You know, this is Black History Month, for example, and we celebrate African-American culture and literature and music and contributions to our society and our way of life and, and building this country. And Appalachia, where would we be without this rich body of literature? Where would we be without Mother to Son by Langston Hughes, for example, written in a vernacular that is clearly the voice of a woman talking to of a working class Black woman talking to her son about how hard life can be, but you cannot give up. And the first lines of that are, well, son, I'll tell you, life ain't been no crystal stair. And one of the things that I do with teachers is I have them rewrite this poem in standard English. And we do that to see what's lost. We wouldn't have Appalachian literature. And the one of the most unique things about this type of literature is voice. These authors are able to write. I mean, their ears are so well tuned to the voices of the people that they're writing about. And they're able to do it in such a nuanced way. It's not overdone. It's not, um, their characters don't become cartoonish. If you listen to the authors that I've got in season one, if you listen to them talk about writing and you listen to them talk about the way that they develop character and character voice, they tell you that less is more, but they know how to do it in such a way that it gives, it's distinctly grounded in place, voice, place. And where would we be if everybody followed this idea that there's only one right way to speak and only one right way to write. We would be missing out on so much. Let's not even think about Appalachian literature for a minute. Let's think about somebody that I grew up reading, Stephen King. And I saw him speak at the Ryman Theater in Nashville a couple of years ago. I got tickets to hear him speak. Well, I didn't get to meet him, but I was just a few rows away from him. But it was really neat to see him in person because I grew up reading him from about seventh grade forward, he made me want to be a writer. He was the first person that made me want to be a writer. And I know some of his stuff is dark and twisted, but it really, it's, there's a reason that he is so popular. His storytelling is so unique and, and grips you. And he is just incredibly prolific, but, and bear with me, because I'm going to make a point here. I met Sharon McCrum. I met Sharon McCrum for the first time many, many years ago, gosh, over 20 years ago. And I told her I wanted to be a writer and, and that I, I would probably be a regional writer. And I didn't know how well that would go over. And she said, you know, and she said, who do you like to read? And I said, well, Stephen King is one of my favorite authors. And she goes, well, read, well, Stephen King is a regional writer. And I said, how do you mean? And she said, well, his, all of his characters, you know, most of his stories, if not all of his stories are set in Maine and he has them speaking a very distinctive dialect. And she's right. If you read his books, he writes his characters with a very unique 
voice that grounds them in the place in which these books are set. And if you watch the movies, whoever makes the movies, I don't know if Stephen King is behind this or whatever, but the characters, the actors generally carry that forward in the way that they um, enunciate their word then the vocabulary that they use. And so um, what if Stephen King had followed that line of thinking? Having said all of this, and I didn't want to go into this too in depth because there will be time for that later when I talk about how to teach students. But I do want to say this. I'm not saying that people don't need to learn and use standard English. I'm never saying that. I do believe learning and using standard English. I teach it. I would be a hypocrite if I said that because I teach it. And I do show students how to code switch out of their vernacular dialect and into a standard dialect when they need it on academic assignments. But in their professional lives, they're going to come, there are going to be times when they need that voice, right? And that's why I say, be proud of your home voice, whatever you want to call it, dialect, home voice, voice place, you choose the word. Be proud of it though. It's who you are and you don't have to erase it. You have that choice. You have the choice about how much you want to use it and how little you want to use it. And that's the biggest thing I want to tell you is you have that choice and you have that right because it is a legitimate encoded variety of a language. Yes, standard English is there. It's there for the taking and you should take advantage of it because it is the power dialect of the United States. And that's just the way it is. It may not seem fair, but that's just the way it is. And we're not, you know, we're not changing that anytime soon, but you can preserve that part of your identity and it's okay. That's what I wanted to make this episode about. It's been on my mind for a really long time and it's um, for anybody out there that's been struggling with this, for any teacher out there that is struggling with this idea that you can't teach standard English and still support the voice places of your students. You absolutely can. You absolutely should. There's nothing wrong with that. So I hope you got something good out of today's episode, and I hope you keep talking Appalachian. I hope you'll join our growing Talking Appalachian community on social media and Patreon. Join the Facebook page to share your own words and phrases, or see how others say and use them. Join our Patreon community to support the podcast and get bonus episodes and content. Plus, be the first to know when merchandise is available and get a coupon. We're also on YouTube now, so please subscribe over there. Thanks so much for your support. 